0: Uh, would you like to come and audition for us? Is yes, I'll, ex- you know, we'll explain it all later. And I just kind of thought and I was like, well, that might be a lot of fun. Uh, I've got nothing better to do other than to work right now, Really?
1: Oh, and welcome to another episode of Live Through That, the companion podcast to my book of the same name where I look at influential 90s musicians and where they are today. I'm Mike Hippel, and on this podcast we'll dig a little deeper into the lives of some of the artists I feature in my book. In upcoming episodes I'm planning on branching out and including folks I wanted to get in my book Live Through That but didn't because of timing or whatnot. Plus artists from the 80s that were in my first book, 80s Redux. Kicking it off this week is Vanessa Briscoe-Hay from the influential late 70s, early 80s band Pylon. I first heard Pylon back in the late 80s when I was in college in Savannah, Georgia, and I was blown away by them. Even more so when I saw them play live a little bit after that, when the band reformed after breaking up in 1983. Pylon emerged from the scene in Athens, Georgia that produced the B-52s, R.E.M., Love Tractor, The Method Actors, and many others. R.E.M.'s Peter Buck famously said of the band's debut record that it made him, quote, suddenly depressed by how much better it was than our record. R.E.M. would later cover Pylon's Crazy on Dead Letter Office, and Vanessa and her band would go on to influence generations of other bands, like Slater Kinney, Interpol, and others. On today's episode, Vanessa tells of her joining the band and how that changed the path her life took.
0: I mean, I've had many turning points in my life, as most people have, but uh, I guess uh, the biggest turning point in my life was uh, actually when Randall Bewley asked me to be a member of uh, Pylon. That made such a huge change in my life, Uh, something at the time that seemed it was going to be just a one-off one one shot kind of thing a one project thing and it's something that here we are you know 41 42 years later and uh it's a project I'm still involved with so uh I had graduated from uh, the University of Georgia Art School um and my uh First husband, he was in the uh, photographic design uh, department, kept changing his major. Uh, He actually moved it over to graphics at that point, couldn't seem to graduate. So uh, I was stuck in town in Athens, and at that, um, you know, back in those years in Athens, people didn't stay in Athens after they graduated unless they were from Athens. And, you know, for instance, went into the uh, family business or uh, work for the university. It was a fairly small town. It was like 60,000 people or so. And it's way beyond that now, twice as many. So uh, I had a job on the weekends and I went in, found another job during the week working at a local uh, department store uh, in the catalog department and it was supposed to just be for Christmas but they kept me through Christmas and uh, Valentine's Day this lady in front uh, called to me and back I was on the telephones you know taking orders uh, said there's this really cute guy out there that wants to talk to you and uh. I kind of looked around the corner, I was on the phone and uh, I said, Oh, that's Randy. Um, You know, he was a a good friend of mine from uh, the UGA art school. And I went out there and he said, you know, uh, Michael and I have a band and uh, uh, would you like to come and audition for us? He said, I'll ex. you know, we'll explain it all later. And I just kind of thought and I was like, well, that might be a lot of fun. Uh, I've got nothing better to do other than to work right now, really.
2: No, we had no idea that she could sing. We were attracted to her because of her appearance, her clothing, her manner, and the fact that she was a female. That's Pylon's bassist, Michael LaHusky. You know, we had toyed with the idea of Randy singing and another guy singing and a third guy singing. And we even had little... um uh you know little tryouts for all three of them and and you know randy and curtis and i just thought about it and we were like you know this this idea of a, a in a way it was like we were already in control of this band and the idea of bringing in like a, a guide to, to kind of front the band and sing our lyrics just i don't know if it was competition or what but we we just were like not into it and we decided And the b52 set a really good you know uh, precedent they had two incredibly powerful uh effective women sort of more or less fronting the band along with fred schneider and and so it was it was not a big deal to ask a woman to do it, it we just you know we we just wanted someone that I, I guess we were just really thinking that she could probably pull it off she had a, a, a shy confidence that we, we we knew that she was creative enough that she'd probably find a way to figure it out but I don't even think she knew that she could sing. I'm not sure if she ever had, you know, tried singing before she, before she, um, I I can't remember how she said we prepared her for this. I can't remember if we gave her a cassette and some lyrics or if we just gave her some lyrics. But essentially she showed up and had figured out or did figure out um, a, a way to fashion these lyrics into the structure of the songs. And you know, I think, like, the next day, we were like, yeah, let's let's tell her we want her to be in our band.
0: So uh, I went that night and auditioned. Uh, I came in and, you know, and, and to me, they've been practicing for a while. They had all these songs, and they set up some lyrics on a music stand in an orange vinyl notebook, and um, um, I just tried to make uh, you know, I'd listen to the song and I tried to make the uh, words fit to what was happening in the music, you know, but of course, when they wrote the words, uh, you know, like Michael wrote most of them, um he did really think about how uh, they might fit in with the music, so I had to really change the uh, structure of that. So, they explained the premise to me, and they said, well, um, it's like an art project. We're going to play a few times around here, but our goal is to go to New York City, perform, get written up in New York Rocker, and then we're going to disband. So anyway, the, the art school we came from, I understood the idea of having a project and presenting it and that was kind of like the end of it you know to me that sounded like great fun
2: pylon has a few little storylines like that i guess every band or you know a lot of people probably have them too and and we we would sort of they would turn into these kind of like chestnuts you know whatever um things that we had just kind of always thought were true and about um i don't know eight years or so ago maybe more um there was a little, uh, there was some interest in looking back at Pylon. But anyway, I was asked to come in and give a keynote talk at a Athens Music, um, I can't remember what it was called now, but it was a symposium about Athens Music organized by the music um, department at the University of Georgia. But they were interested in this kind of research project and looking at Athens Music, not just our scene, but all any kind of Athens Music, you know, gospel or shape singing and whatnot going all the way back for um, a century or more but I was the key I was going to give a keynote talk and I decided that I needed to do a little bit of primary research about what pylon really was saying or thought at the time so I pulled out all the all the press that had, I, had, I had kept and just started going through and reading the interviews that, we, that were printed and oftentimes just straight up transcribed in a bunch of the news weeklies when, back when Pylon was on the road in the 80s, early 80s. And um, we would, um, you know, just go on and on just like I am now talking to people. And sometimes they would they would put long passages from these interviews in the newspapers so I, I read back over as much of that stuff as I could find, and it turns out it was true we We really did say that back in like 1979 <laughs> like that was sort of what we were consciously aiming for was just to get written up in New York rocker. you know, and so um. It was we were in a bit of a quandary when before we ended up in New York Rocker, we actually ended up in Interview Magazine. And we were like, well, now we don't know how to sort this out because Interview Magazine was was too high of a goal to have ever hoped for, you know, and now it's kind of already happened before New York Rocker. So we kind of got off track on that goal pretty early on.
0: So then, you know, we actually did play a few times and people really just stared at us uh, the first few times. And uh, they, I don't think they knew what to think about us. We didn't really sound like anybody else who was playing around in uh, our town at the time. We certainly really didn't sound like the B-52s. And uh, not until... I guess it was the third or fourth time we played. B52 saw us and um, just went nuts. And they were kind of like a catalyst and started dancing. And uh, through one of their friends, uh, Robert Molnar, he was a designer, but also worked at the, the door at the med club. We got uh, booked into Hurrah. And uh, we open for the Gang of Four, I guess it was about, uh, let's see, it was mid-August. They got me in mid-February. So ever how many months that was, not even half a year, we were playing in New York City. And then it was just too much fun to give up, and we kept going. So that really changed the whole trajectory of my life, you know. The reason we broke up the first time is, uh, really there started to be, uh, too much pressures, different people telling us we had to do certain things a certain way. Uh, a big example of that, we had hired a professional, uh, booking agent to help us, uh, after we'd finished recording Chomp, uh, before it was released and, um, the summer of, uh, 1983 and uh, he uh, called up Michael Blahusky, our bassist who had been handling you know most of uh, our bro- booking prior to that for several years. And he told Michael that he had booked us for the U2 tour. and uh, Michael's like what? You know, because he had done this without discussing it with us, first of all. And uh, secondly, we weren't sure if that was the right audience for us. I mean, you know, at that point in time, there wasn't, there weren't bands like us or, you know, later on R.E.M. And, well, I guess the B-52s had um, kind of cracked that arena thing. But there, you know it wasn't really our audience Uh, we hadn't really built up to that point and so it didn't sound like a lot of fun to us and so uh the producer uh, excuse me the booking agent said to michael well if you aren't going to do this kind of thing why are you in this business and so michael came back to talk to us about this and we were like yeah why are we in this business (laughs) Because we'd made a pack in the beginning that we would do it as long as it was fun. That was kind of the, uh, what was behind the whole thing is it was an art project. It was meant to be fun to us and um, we were supposed to enjoy it and enjoy what we were producing and, you know, have some control over our lives and how we did things and so... Uh, to keep the guy from having egg on his face, we agreed to do several of those shows. And I came back and uh, talked about it a lot. And we were like, well, you know, let's just go ahead and break up. So we didn't announce that to anybody. But we spent time, you know, uh, touring some, going around the country and then Uh, We also, uh, you know, because we'd had the record come out, we wanted to be sure we did some touring for it. And then we made a point of going and traveling to cities that we really liked to perform in, and uh, especially up in the Northeast and uh, Atlanta and Athens, of course. And so we played our last show in December 1st, uh, 1983 in Athens.
1: Thank you to Vanessa and Michael for sharing their memories. And without further ado, here are some of what's inspiring Vanessa today.
0: I've been inspired uh, during the pandemic to begin painting again. And uh, I invited a, a curator, who was a friend of mine, uh, to the house. On You know, he was visiting Athens uh, to look at some of my things with me. And he saw the small painting on the wall that I had, and he became really intrigued with it and uh just took it right off the wall and put it in the show I I mean I had no plans of joining some group show but now um I'm working again I've uh, made some prints uh to sell through the site exclusively uh through artsy and uh that's been a lot of fun um to do that to and, uh, you know, to be making art again, I have the time now, and uh, it's just something I really haven't had time for in years. I mean, uh, when I was, uh, you know, being a mother, I might have time to jot down some ideas that were in my head on a scrap of paper somewhere in the back of an envelope, you know, like lyrics or a poem or an idea, and I... I might have time to make a sketch, but you know, most of my paints and supplies they put up just, well, for two reasons. One reason is uh, uh, some of that stuff is kind of poisonous to children. And uh, another thing is I really didn't have room uh, to work, but uh, as time went on and they got older, uh, I have had more and more time, especially Uh, to devote to music, and uh, uh, what's been inspirational to me is to see uh, some of the bands that we formerly performed with have uh, been doing some reissues, and, uh, you know, besides my own band's reissue, Pylon Box, which came out November last year, uh, I know how much work it is to get you know these things together because I was heavily involved with that. But uh, you know, the DBs have been reissuing *On Propeller*, and uh, they were such an influential band. Uh, came out of uh, North Carolina, moved to New York. It's nice to see them reissuing their, you know, product and getting some recognition, uh, maybe for their influence on other bands. Uh, Of course, our friends, the Gang of Four, they came out with the box set as well. Not too long after ours uh, that had a a tape in there that had an early recording. And then there are two wonderful albums, you know, entertainment and solid gold, as well as some buttons. And then the Bush Tetris who, uh, you know, they recently experienced the loss of their drummer, D-Pop. He was just a wonderful person, and uh, their box set just came out. You know, of course, the Gang of Four lost Andy Gill, the guitarist. He was so influential uh, several years ago. Now, a musician, you know, I've... I am so embarrassed that I just really had never paid any attention to him before. That recently came to my attention through a New York Times article and a, a post to my friend Jason Neesmith's page about the sky turning in 80. is Michael Hurley. And I think that he's probably more well known in the Northwest. Uh, than he is in uh, my area, you know, in the Northeast, than, you know, my area of the country. But I could be wrong. Uh, but uh, he just had an album come out. He's 80 years old now. And this album is just really great. It's called The Time of the Fox Foxgloves," And I've been going back and listening to earlier recordings all the way back, you know, to the 60s when he was a young man and uh it's just been wonderful to listen uh, to his stuff i've since found out some songs i've heard by bands like uh cat power and yellow tango and all of that you know they've been aware for years but i don't know it just i just missed it i missed that uh <laughs> i missed that notification and so I've been enjoying listening to him. I mean, you know, I'm a big Leonard Coven fan, so I like that kind of uh, dark, humorous folk. I mean, a lot of people don't realize how humorous Leonard Coven is, but he is. Then there have been a couple of local bands here that have put out a couple of records, uh, I think are very good. One of them came out last year on a new label called Strolling Bones, which uh, is a subsidiary of New West Records, and it's actually named after my husband, Bob Hayes' band, the Squalls' uh, song, Strolling Bones. Anyway, this band is called Haunted Shed, and is led by this guy who moved here from the West Coast named... Etienne de Rocher, I'm probably garbling his name. Dan Nettles, he was a wonderful guitarist. Uh, I've been watching for years on different projects. Um, Joe Rowe, he was the drummer for uh, Pallon Reenactment Society and had done drums for Love Tractor. And so that's been a really great record to listen to. That came out last year um and then there's a a band called immaterial possession uh they're on cloud recordings very exciting has a female guitarist they're, uh there's something very uh mysterious uh kind of uh reminds me of you know athens uh you know back in the house party days but very uh artistic, has kind of a, a pre-World War One kind of aspect to some of their uh, um, visuals. Um, that's been a lot of fun to watch. and We have a lot of younger bands here in Athens that I think are going to be fun to watch in the years ahead, like A.D. Blanco and Fishbuck, for example. So, uh, that's, that's what I've been excited about um, is listening to music, and I listen to music when I'm painting, so it's nice to have new things to listen to or to have old things that maybe I hadn't listened to in a while come back to the surface you know, and be reissued.
1: that's it for today's episode you can buy my book on 80s artists that features vanessa 80s redux wherever you buy your books and please be sure to also check out my book on the 90s live through that available everywhere now you can get 15 percent off live through that using the promo code podcast 15 by ordering at the link on the podcast page and if you like this show please subscribe so you know when the latest episode comes out thanks for listening and we'll see you next week